Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live. Because our, our calendar, so let me put it this way, the priorities of your life shape your calendar, don't they? Right? I mean, whether it's birthdays or, um, you know, celebrations, Easter, Christmas, all these things, how a job, you look at your calendar and it will define or explain, rather, um, how you define the priorities of your life. Well, the church decided that we need to do the same thing, but we're going to do it around um, specific feasts and fasts, and today is the last Sunday before Advent, which is a big deal. So today on the church calendar, it is a feast called the Feast of Christ, King of the Universe. That is the day that we're celebrating today. So every church uh, who, who's, who follows the liturgical calendar um, today is celebrating this feast. Now, interestingly enough, um, the, the, this feast is something that the name was shortened. So the name, the full name is the Feast of Christ. mid-2025-26, so just a couple years ago, um, the church decided that they needed some type of feast. This feast was something that was pushed initially by the Franciscan order of the Catholic Church, and it wasn't universalized in the full name, and I say universalized on purpose, until the 60s with Vatican II, the Second Vatican Council. So it was said that in the 1920s, the kings of Europe had been fighting and killing one another, most of which on behalf of, most of them on behalf of their version of Christianity. So the various countries were engaging in violence, killing one another on behalf of a king peace. Does that sound familiar? We go to war so that we can have... So all of them had been fighting. If you remember the early 1900s, I mean, we've got World War One that's happened. We've got the leading up to and the the um, the, the powder keg that became World War Two. Um, you have this this culture where empires are, especially in Europe, are struggling and fighting for who's going to be in charge. And so what happened is the the Catholic Church determined we need to have something that brings everybody together. So they came up with this idea for a feast. The Franciscans pushed this, that it was to be Christ, the king of the universe. However, they decided, no, we're just going to call it the feast of Christ, the king. So in the 1920s, they started calling this feast Christ, the king. The reason uh, that that became a challenge is because in that idea of Christ, the king, the church instituted a feast only retaining the name Christ, the king, which allowed each group to nationalize Christ as their king. People will never do things as ugly, demonic, and egregious as when you do it on behalf 
most of what happened by it being Christ the King, it became Christ the German King and Christ the Russian King and Christ the Yugoslavian King and Christ the American King. And so we all begin to struggle with the idea of he's he became in some ways it was like we wanted a king, but in many ways it became more of a mascot. So Jesus becomes our mascot. And what that mascot says is, okay, we're doing this on behalf of God in the same way that when um, John Locke and the Puritans came here um, and first decided how are we going to interact with the Native Americans, what they did is they asked all the pastors to gather together and to spend the night in prayer. And they spent the night in prayer to see what God would have us to do. And they came out with a very clear vision. That vision was that Christ is the king. Christ is leading them. And as a result, they massacred all of the Native Americans, the indigenous people around them. The reason is because they looked at the Old Testament. They said, because Christ is our king, he's leading us into this promised land just the way that God led Israel into the promised land. And the goal is to wipe out the he- uh, the, the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Moabites. And so while these Native Americans were preparing them food, they went in and absolutely annihilated them under the banner of Christ as king. So what happens is when Christ is king, he can become nationalized. Jesus becomes a nationalized icon, much like the Crusades. Does anybody remember what was on the shields of the Crusades? A what? So the intent of the Franciscans was to do something bigger than this because Christ then is not the king of just this group and this group and this group. Christ is the king of the universe. So now we are not citizens of any country, but we're scripture tellers. We're strangers and aliens and not of the world system. That's the idea. We're not citizens of this place. So they're trying to make something bigger, but they didn't allow that to happen until the 1960s. So in this, we see yet another example of getting a bad answer when you start with a bad question. You see, most of the traditions use the gospel of Luke based in what some call Plan B theology. Okay, Plan B theology uh, teaches that the whole thing starts with a big mistake. Adam and Eve in the garden, Eve gets hungry. So plan B theology starts with a mistake. So then that idea says in some way that God was taken off guard. Things were just kind of off. So he has to look over at Jesus and it becomes plan B. It's like a cleanup operation. That Jesus has to come and fix it all because he mucked it up. In that idea of plan B theology, doesn't God seem a little, I don't know, not bothered by this? Like God is taken off guard, God's surprised, God doesn't, you know, oh well, you know, this whole thing, I guess we'll just have to send Jesus around. It begins with goodness. The whole thing is goodness. And so Jesus comes to show us this broader picture. And in this gospel, it gives us a bigger and broader view. Most of us have read verses that illustrate this bigger, more universal view. For example, we know that Jesus is the Alpha and the the beginning and the since the beginning Jesus in the end Christ so what you find is over and over we read these uh, Colossians teach that in the end Christ will be 
sovereign and God is going to punish us or give us judgment if we don't make the right decisions. The basis of most of our peace is based in our picture of a God who is loving but is patient. So what Jesus comes to say is do not be afraid. Paul Young says this. The work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to reveal to us the truth of our being so that the way of our being can be changed. That's what holiness is. When the way of your being is just truth of us have grown up in some type of Pentecostal relationship, if there's an equivalent. And I would say we have such a an anemic understanding of what the Holy Spirit is. Most of us think that the Holy Spirit is what God does. The action of God. So when God is present in grief, we say it's This morning, we're going to talk a little bit about why this is so important. But we must start with the recognition of the context. The very nature of God, therefore, is to seek out the deepest possible communion and friendship with every last creature on the earth. That's a mouthful. The very nature of God is to seek the deepest possible communion friendship with every class, every class, every class creature. That's the deepest nature of God. So it brings us to the advocate because Jesus says what God is going to leave us is an advocate. So for many of us, we've used this passage. It starts with this idea of if you love me, you'll keep my Now we know what that word means, you know. If, if ever we didn't, we wondered what quid pro quo meant. Turn on the news, it's everywhere. So we function in a tit for tat, quid pro quo um, society. That's just what we do. So what God is saying is, if you love me, you'll do this. So what that allows us to do is to sit in a seat of judgment because if we see people who are not living up to the standard of what we think the commandment of God is, we cannot just question their action. We get to question what? If they love God. That's like a whole nother level of judgment. That's so if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So if I see that Linda is smoking back smoking cigars again, and we all know that, that one of the commandments, thou shalt not smoke a stogie, um, we recognize that it doesn't just mean that Linda loves Swisher Sweets. It actually means that she doesn't love God. I'm assuming it's the wood chips in the ice box that bring out the tears. Um, so if the idea is that, that you're not keeping the commandments, it doesn't just allow us to question their action. Do you realize just how, how messed up this is and how far we've taken it? So we think that when we're sinning, by breaking a commandment, we're actually not loving God. That's a really interesting perspective. Now, the thing that I love about this is many of us have used this passage as some type of guilt trip litmus test about the authenticity of one's love for God. Then we pour on the list of commandments to test love's authenticity. 
We find clearly that Jesus has just finished giving them what he called the new commandment. Right? Literally, the verse before it, Jesus says, I give unto you a new commandment that you what? One another. Love one another. Now we're getting somewhere. So what he says is, if you love me, you will love one another. So the question isn't if you love me, you'll tithe. If you love me, you'll pray and read your devotional books. If you love me, you'll not love me, you'll abstain from your new Cardi B album. Right? If you love me, um, you'll only, your the ceiling of your movie watching will be at PG-13. If you love me, you'll do what? And the only measurement we have of God ends in me and not in the flow of life has become a dam to the river and it's stopping it. So what Jesus says at the beginning is love one another. It seems too simple, doesn't it, for that that's really it. So he starts with this and then he begins to talk to us about the advocate. Now, uh, we're going to talk quickly about the Holy Spirit. I recognize this is Christ king of the universe, but Jesus has already said, the way that you'll know where I am is when you love one another. And I'm not going to leave you comfortless, but I'm going to send an advocate that you'll know where I am. So the way that we identify and understand that Christ is the king of the universe is by the work of what around us? The Holy Spirit. physical form, but what is going to be felt in its stead is what? An advocate, the Holy Spirit. See, we get really uncomfortable because this is not how we understand the Holy Spirit. We understand the Holy Spirit as the thing that makes us speak in tongues. And that's not only unfortunate, I would argue that's unbiblical. That's an age question. So the idea of Christ since the beginning is that it's Christ has been working in perfect love to animate the entire universe. Jesus then instructs the disciples that even though he's leaving, they have a divine indwelling within them. What's the divine indwelling within us? Doug? The Holy Spirit. Everyone, everyone has a divine Because what we've been taught is that you get a little bit of the Holy Spirit when you get saved. And then you get filled when you start shamanamanamaning. But that's just not what the Bible teaches. I honestly wish we could do away with the term filled with the Spirit. say that again. 
mechanically Calvin is going to get notarized up and say that don't you know that we're holy before you can come to us. Hear what I'm saying. If God's spirit is in you, then you have reason to trust the deepest movements of your So what you find um, is that in this idea, Jesus says, I'm leaving you an advocate. Some translations say comforter, some say the Holy Spirit. But the more time I spend in the book of John and specifically studying regarding the Holy Spirit only serves to confirm in me the word advocate is probably the best. Um, The concept is very broad, but most agree that when John pens this word, um, he is picturing a defense Someone who works on behalf of our good. This is very important to distinguish because in Judaism, there was the concept of the Spirit of God and certainly a concept of a communion of being rather than a singularity of being that was found in most religions. In fact, it was theologically speaking for me to say that even within Judaism, they had an understanding that God was a communion of being, not a singularity of being. All the other religions had a God, a, a, a singular being that sat on a throne. In Judaism, they had the idea, in fact, in creation, when they wrote the creation story, it is so let us. So the idea is that we have a challenge with is that we are not really Trinitarians. So just to clarify what the word Trinitarian is, Father, right, so we're really not Trinitarians. I mean, we should be, (laughs) but we've not really been ingrained in Trinitarian thought because we still think that God is the Father up on the throne. I have to tell you something. God is not the Father. So the Father is a part of who God is, and the Jewish people understood this, and the Christians then really applied this. Jesus brought this fully to bear. So the idea to remember, first and foremost, is that 
when you're looking at this idea, it is a communion and a choice. God is much more of a verb than God is a noun. God is an activity, a fellowship, a communion, a givenness. So God is movement itself. And so what happens is you find this idea um, and clarity of the dynamism of who God is really profoundly in Jesus. Paul developed a similar theology. Jesus wasn't, I don't believe, trying to theologize this as much as just saying this is how it is. But that's where he comes along. He just read it. The Father and I are right? So the whole idea is it's Trinitarian. The three are one and the one is three. And so you find this metaphysically down to the very basic building block of creation. Because everything in creation is built by atoms. Not A-D-A-M-S, A-T-A-M-S, right? And does anybody have any idea, if you can probably just guess this, what atoms are constructed of? Three parts. Stuff, and electrons. Three. The building blocks of our actual creation, the universe itself is constructed by three. In fact, down to the nature of who God is, all of this is a three framework. Why? Because if it's a three framework, what ends up happening is we fall into, what's the word that we've been using a lot? Well, there's two. It begins with a D. D is, sorry? Dualistic thinking. Dualistic is either or. It's this or it's that. Everything in our natural world around us leads us to dualistic thinking, doesn't it? It's good or it's bad. It's a Republican or it's a... So it's, that's just the way we work. It's dualistic thinking. Trinitarian thinking, the nature of God, builds in the other. It builds in the paradox. It builds in the idea that it's yes and, not either or. So the nature of God breaks us free from this, this, this thing that drives us into buckets and boxes and lines where it's me or So Jesus then invites us into a place where we are existing within the Trinity of God itself. Maybe the best thing to remember when we talk about God, now this is, put on your thinking cap for a moment. This is going to be weird, but I've already given you the fact that the Father is not God. So I feel like that we're already got some momentum going. Um, so when you look at how language works, we have to first understand that when we talk about God, we're always talking in metaphor. When we talk about God, we're always talking in metaphor. And the idea is that um, we really we don't have anything else. So that's why in the Bible you find that God is a consuming. Right. Is God really fire? No. But they were trying to find metaphor for how they were describing God at that moment. When, uh, when you find um, that the Holy Spirit came into the upper room, it came in the sound of a rushing mighty, is God really wind? No. Okay, Jesus, uh, in the book of Revelation, John's talking and they say, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and behold, they turned and they saw a pure and spotless lamb. Is Jesus really a lamb? No. Okay, so the first thing that we have to understand, and you learn this in basic linguistics, okay, we're going back to school now. Basic linguistics say that all metaphors blink, L-I-N-K. What that means is that a metaphor will be true in several ways, but it can never be true in every way. If it was true in every way, it would no longer be a metaphor. Okay? So hold on to that because that's how we think. That's all our brains can do. And so that's why when you're talking to people about um, uh, about who God is, 
and you start using metaphors, you're doing the best you can, but you're constantly trying to describe something that can relate to specifically where they're at. Using a metaphor. And so, is, but what, what you'll notice about people is people get really weird about that because people latch on to metaphors and, and the, the, the words we use when we talk about God, and they begin to think that that encapsulates So here's where we take the jump. Father is a metaphor. Son is a metaphor. Holy Spirit is a metaphor. It's not literally. So like if if God got mail, it wouldn't be father. We've got some folks in the room. Uh, Father, that's 777 Holy Shroud. Son. Seven, 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 holy name. You, you get what I'm saying? These are metaphors. And so God's name is not Father. God's name is also not Mother. But I have to tell you that Mother is as equal of a metaphor for God as Father. Because it's still just a metaphor. And when you're talking to somebody who's had an explicit Father and you're trying to describe to them,
and all they needed were the screens because the homing device within them responds and says something is happening. That's the Holy Spirit pulling us forward. I believe personally uh, that the Holy Spirit's job is to fill chaos if we're confining the world, not meaning to fill chaos and bring it forward. The Holy Spirit's job is to join the given and the receiving. So it pulls the thing forward. And right now, I happen to think that the Holy Spirit is incredibly at work. Our country is so full of chaos. I really don't care where you land politically. We are in such a destructive, chaotic mess. And I think that rather than be fearful and upset and try to batten down hatches and nail down the furniture, we need to be dancing because the Holy Spirit is at work. Think about it. The, the Genesis creation story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and there was, um, if you want to say, destruction or confusion. And what happens next? The Holy Spirit moves across the water. That's what happens. It's the job of the Holy Spirit to pull the thing forward. It literally looks for openings and fills those gaps. Why? Because it's an advocate. The Holy Spirit is the advocate that fills the spaces in our lives and holds things together. It ties pieces together so that the givenness of God, which is always coming towards us, can be received by us even in the midst of destruction and chaos and confusion and challenge. The Holy Spirit is the, is the intermediary between the two of us. It's that influence of God. It's not the thing that turns it from a normal Sunday worship service into a raucous party. But that's what we think the Holy Spirit is. Spirit is the love and the loving relationship between the Father and the Son, or once again, that's a metaphor, the givenness and the receivedness. So the Holy Spirit is the one that in this relationship itself is gratuitously given to us, or better, that we are included inside of this universal, back to the message, back to the title, this universal reinforcing guide. So why the advocate or the attorney? So the reason this might be important, so this language is really interesting, and you don't find it anywhere in Christianese. So contextually speaking, you could say that part of it is because Jesus has just been telling them they'll be troubled, they'll be afraid, they'll be uncomfortable. That works. I think that is a work of the Holy Spirit. But I do think that I really like, I find this phrasing for the advocate, the defense attorney, really important because when you look at this, in God's wisdom, God built into the whole thing. Inside of you since birth has been a work of the Holy Spirit that's job is to speak to you about your belovedness, your belongedness, and your sense of the greater good, even when things don't look good, because there is another influence called the accuser. Anybody know what the name Satan is what? Accuser. Literally. The the, Satan is not a name. It's really not. Like when that term, like the idea of Satan, it's not a name. That's Joel. It's describing an influence. So anytime we're in accusation, we're in Satanism by definition. Like when we're accusing somebody, we're being Satanist. By definition, and it doesn't require goat's heads to do it, or Ozzy Osbourne, right? So the idea is that God understood that there needed to be an advocate, because within us and from outside of us, there is this accusing thing that attempts to shame me for all of my shortcomings. This voice of accusation tries to pry away from us our sense of belovedness. The word the New Testament uh, writers use to describe this influence is Satan, and it literally means to accuse. 
so you can now see why Jesus felt it was important in his in the absence of his physicality to define the Holy Spirit that had always been with them as an advocate or one who would act as a defense attorney because they were going to deal with accusations. So when you are, do you realize then why the attempt is so strong to define you as depraved? Why the attempt is so strong to shame your natural being as fallen, sinful, no good. Because that's satanic. That is the most clear defined satanic thing that can happen is when you receive that accusation that comes unfortunately when you've given that to us that you're not any good that there's nothing good about you but if you'll listen there's a whisper that is built into you like a humming device that draws you back into the intrinsic depths of God's heart that says you're beloved you are Let me ask you this. Maybe this is the best question to ask today. Has God ever told you that you're just a physical, sinful, entity? If that's the truth that we can believe, then wouldn't the best thing a father could do be to tell you so that you can walk in unity with your wife? Of course it is. But it's not to be. We're fathers at least when we're with God. It speaks to the Holy that you have in love to keep wooing you back into the depths of the free flow of grace. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. And this Holy Spirit has been implanted within you. Paul builds upon this in John's Gospel, beautifully expounding that Christ is not out there, but Christ is in you in the form of the indwelling Spirit. Paul goes on to say this in Romans, the Spirit of God joins with our spirit to bear common witness that we are the children of God. It's that simple. I can't say this strongly enough. God has implanted in us a true heavenly device that we can depend on. Paul believes that we've all been given a source for a true inner knowledge that becomes a calm inner authority when we know spiritual things for ourselves and we've been so afraid to say this We've been told that we can't trust ourselves. We've been told that we can't trust the voice of God because it's depraved and fallen and sinful and rotten and lustful and worldly. But the reality is the depths of your being are good and the job of the Holy Spirit is to be implanted within you to sing freedom's song when you can't sing it yourself. God is 
restore you to that degree. The love in you, which is the spirit of you, always somehow says yes, even when you don't have the strength to go away. Love is not something you do, but it becomes something you are. It's your truest self, the faith, the foundation of your very being. Because if, as Paul says, or it says in the book of Acts, in God, we live and move and have our very being. So Christ is the king of the universe because what Christ actually taught them is there's nowhere where Christ is not. So when Jesus left in physicality in the incarnation, when Jesus left in that way, Jesus did not leave. I don't leave you comfortless. Don't be afraid. I'm leaving for you not just the comforter that tells you everything is going to be okay, an advocate that fights to fill the chaos and bring the whole thing forward into the perfection of God's love that he's intended from the beginning. So when any when civil rights happens, the Holy Spirit shows up. When the feminist movement happens, the Holy Spirit shows up. Anytime the, the literally things move forward, it's because the Holy Spirit has been filling the chaos, filling the things together that it does. So the Holy Spirit is at work in the world right now. The Holy Spirit is absolutely at work in our country and in our Congress and in our Senate and in our White House and in our town hall meetings. The Holy Spirit is at work to bring the things forward. So I, that, in that regard, I don't have to be worried. I don't have to fear what's, what's going to happen. And Donald Trump, uh, President Trump gets um, impeached, whatever things like that. I just don't have to worry about that. We need to fight for what's right, but we also need to know that if it feels right, the Holy Spirit is filling the chaos to bring the Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.blog.com.